Ruth 1. And you might want to keep your Bibles open afterwards because I'm going to refer to the chapter and to a number of things in the chapter as we go through. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth, and they had lived there about ten years. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait till they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. And then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, but it ever, be, but it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life better, very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Uh, 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, telling the story of the indigenous people of Canada leaves you with the same sort of emptiness as you have at the end of chapter 1 of the book of Ruth. And the blanket exercise, which is an interactive educational program that teaches the history of indigenous people in Canada, tells the story of the First Nations in this way. Long before the arrival of Europeans, Turtle Island, as, in, as the indigenous name for the earth or land in North America was called, Turtle Island was home to millions of people. Those millions of people were divided into hundreds of nations. They fished and hunted and farmed. In fact, the land was very important to the people living on it. All their needs, food, clothing, shelter, culture, their spirituality were taken care of by the land. In return, they took very seriously their responsibility to take care of the land. Each community had its own language, culture, traditions, laws, and governments. As communities, they often worked together and cooperated with one another. And like with all people, sometimes there was conflict. Before the newcomers arrived, many of the ways in which the aboriginal peoples ended disputes was by, by making treaties one with another. But that world began to change when newcomers arrived. At first, there were treaties that governed the relationships, but after a while, the aboriginals didn't get along very well with the newcomers anymore. They were no longer needed as allies in war. And as the fur trade dried up, the European newcomers turned more and more to farming and started looking for more and more land. And before long, there were more Europeans than there were indigenous peoples. There were some reasons for that. One of reason for this was the diseases, diseases that newcomers brought with them. Diseases such as smallpox and measles and tuberculosis. The indigenous people suffered badly from these diseases because they had never had them in their communities before. And millions of them died. In fact, some people believe that half the indigenous people alive at the time died simply from these diseases. In some communities, 9 out of 10 people died. Then in 1876 in Canada, all the laws dealing with indigenous people were gathered together and put into what is known as the Indian Act, an act that completely changed the lives of aboriginal people. As long as their cultures were strong, it was difficult for the government to take their lands, and so the government used the Indian Act to attack who they were as people. Hunting and fishing were now limited. Their spiritual ceremonies like the potlatch and the powwow and the sun dance were now against the law. And all that didn't change till the 1950s. Can you imagine? Then from the mid-1800s, if things weren't bad enough already, from the mid-1800s until, mid, until the 1990s, the federal government took First Nations, Inuit, and Métis children from their homes and communities and put them in boarding schools, very often far away from their homes, and their children had to stay at them all or for most of the year. 
And indigenous parents didn't have a choice about this. Sometimes the police would arrive to take away the children. Mostly they were not allowed to speak their languages and were punished if they did. And often they, didn't, they weren't given enough food. The last residential school closed in 1996. And if that wasn't bad enough yet, from the 1960s to the 1980s, thousands of First Nations and Métis children were forced illegally from their homes and adopted or fostered, usually by non-Aboriginal people. That period was known as the, 19, as the 60s scoop. And many of these kids experienced violence and racism and abuse and a lost connection to their culture and their identity. And like residential schools, the purpose of the 60s scoop was assimilation. And those of you who went to Manitoulin Island will know something of this story. At one time, indigenous peoples roamed Turtle Island, but now land reserved for them is only a very, very tiny part of Canada. In fact, reserves below the 60th parallel make up less than one half of 1% of Canada's land mass. And while many attempts have been made to correct the wrongs and to change that history, our relationship with indigenous populations continues to be wrought with difficulty and one only begins to wonder how in the world do we make it right? Certainly when one thinks of the story of the indigenous peoples of this land, it's a story of fullness to emptiness from having an incredible inheritance to having no inheritance at all. Sounds like the story of Ruth, but not totally, because the story of Ruth has an unexpected twist, a twist that I wish the story of the Aboriginal peoples of this land had as well. The story of Ruth ends with a twist, and from a Jewish point of view, a twist that they would never have dreamed up, a twist that put a foreign woman of all people, a Moabites, into the genealogy of Jesus from Matthew 1. That alone should tell us something. But let me put the story into context for a moment. When we end the book of Joshua, the people of Israel are firmly planted in the promised land. There is peace. And in the final chapter of Joshua, if you want to go there, just have a look at it. In the final chapter of Joshua, we hear the people reaffirm their covenant with the Lord at Shechem. Now they had everything they needed and could possibly want. They were fully in possession of this land flowing with milk and honey. But it was not to stay that way. From the opening verse, did you notice in chapter 1 of Ruth, from the opening verse of the book of Ruth, we note that things are different. Our first clue that things are not well is the statement that the story was set in the day the judges ruled. The day the judges ruled was a time in the life of Israel when there was considerable anarchy. Judges 21 verse 25 puts it like this. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. Indeed, 
One only needs to read the book that precedes the book of Ruth to understand something of the mess Israel was in. Disobedience and worship of false gods on the part of the people of Israel led to God's judgment at the hands of foreign armies who invaded the land and destroyed much of Israel. And such destruction and such punishment often brought the people to their knees as they called to God for help. And that call to the Lord usually resulted in the appointment of a judge like Samson and Gideon and others. And it's thought that Ruth, the story of Ruth, took place during the judgeship of Eli, the priest, at a time when Samuel was growing up in the temple. When I think of the time of the judges, I think of present-day chaos in places like I don't mean to center them out because there's many places, more places too, but Venezuela or Syria or Afghanistan. I think of the drug wars in parts of Mexico or other places in the south. In those places and many more, there's been much bloodshed and anarchy as rival war or drug lords go at it or as tribes go at it and destroy everything or everyone in their, name, in the, in their way, all in the name of retribution or for power or whatever. Surely in such places and under such circumstances, there's much emptiness, emptiness of spirit, emptiness of lack of respect for others. There's hunger, lack of stability, lack of peace. Surely in such places, there must be not much joy. And certainly the picture this, uh, that one gets in the midst of anarchy is Pictures usually that are bleak and dismal. We see broken bodies and bloated bellies and endless lines of refugees and endless tears. Emptiness and hopelessness seem to be in the, or the order of the day in many parts of our world. But it's here in Canada and in our region too. There's indigenous towns in this province that look like third world countries. There are homeless and hungry and poor people on our streets. There have been five homicides in the Waterloo region in 2019 and 20 cases of gun violence. Emptiness and hopelessness and chaos seem to be the order of the day in many parts of our region and our country. Well, such is the picture we start with when we open the book of Ruth. There seems to be a dearth of hope in the land. And to add to the misery, we read that there was famine in the land. Food was hard to come by. And we've all seen the pictures of people lining up to receive United Nations food rations. Even locally, food banks seem to be running empty as more and more people are in need of food aid. What hunger, what emptiness. So that's the picture we begin with. And then we're introduced to a family from Bethlehem. The father's name was Elimelech. His wife was Naomi, and they had two sons. By all accounts, this was quite an ordinary Jewish family. And Elimelech and Naomi, along with their two sons, decided not to stay in Bethlehem. But like many folks have done throughout the world, during times of famine and emptiness in their land, they left for some other place that had. They didn't, so they went to a place that had. And they left for the land of Moab, a land to the east of the Dead Sea. Apparently, there was food available in Moab. 
There's irony in all of this. Bethlehem, which means house of bread, had no bread. Moab, a foreign place, had bread, had food. And so there they went. It must have been quite the immigration in those days. Elimelech and Naomi left behind all they had known, all they had cherished, and went to live in a foreign land. Israel had fought for this promised land, and now they left it for a foreign land. For those of us who are refugees or who have immigrated or moved long distances and left behind what's familiar to us, we can identify with this family from Bethlehem. Such a move often results in loneliness, a feeling of being lost, basically an emptiness as one steps into an unknown world where others already have their connections and their place. And so in the first couple verses of this book, we have an uncertain political situation, actually anarchy, famine, and a move to a foreign land. The picture's already bleak. But it's about to get bleaker as we read on. Life would become even more devastating for the small family from Bethlehem. Verse 3 tells us that while in Moab, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. That's horrible. The breadwinner, the head of the home, the one who gave Naomi an identity and protection, died. She became a widow and a single mother. Those of you who have lost a spouse know what that does to you. How devastating that can be. No one to share with. No one to spend time with. No one to look after you. No one to hug or caress. No one from whom to receive encouragement. The evenings become long. All the dreams of retiring and finally spending time together are gone. Like so many folks who have lost their partner, Naomi walked into an empty house. Talk about emptiness. And then one might say, well, at least there were still the two sons. That's true, but children can never take the place of a lost spouse. And now she's a single mother, and she can't even talk to her husband about what that's like. And then things got even worse for Naomi. After having lived in Moab for about 10 years, both her sons died. It's not known how far apart the two brothers died, but really it doesn't matter. It was a terrible loss, not only for their wives, Orpah and Ruth, but also for Naomi. Her husband and her two sons, gone, dead. Moreover, it appears that there were no grandchildren. No one left to receive the inheritance. There was no one left. Naomi was all left all alone with no one to carry on the family name, with no one to look after her in her old age. And the fact that her husband Elimelech and her two sons Malion and Kilion died in Moab only added to her misery. They were separated from their homeland, and for Naomi that meant that if she were to go back to Israel, she would now even be more separated from her husband and children because they would be buried in Moab. Talk about emptiness. If you've lost a son or a daughter, you can identify with Naomi. 
how horrible it is to go to a cemetery to bury a son or a daughter. And I suspect that each time it happens, a little piece of the parent is buried too. And then when the family goes home, the emptiness hits. Well, having heard that there was an end to the famine in Bethlehem, Naomi decides to go home to the house of bread. What else could she do? What future did she have in that foreign land of Moab? The daughters-in-law, both foreign women, had no right to any sort of inheritance in the land. They join her for the journey. But knowing that they were not entitled to any inheritance and knowing that they were foreign women at a certain point in the journey, Naomi encourages the women to go back to their home and go back to that which is familiar to you. She kissed them and they wept aloud, verse 10. At the moment of departure, all the emptiness and the sadness they had witnessed over the years must have washed over them. After all, it was because of all their losses that they were now at this point in their history. And it's always at the highlight moments in our lives, isn't it, that our history somehow catches up with us. That's what makes Christmas so tough for so many people because all the things, all the hopes and dreams and all the thoughts about being together suddenly can't happen. And that was the case here. Everything that had happened to them was crystallized in this moment on the road back to Bethlehem. Return home, my daughters, verse 12. Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? And the answer is, of course, no. And then we hear Naomi use the word bitter for the first time. Life had become bitter for her. She was empty in terms of her family and in terms of her inheritance. She had lost everything. What possible hope could she have? It's really interesting because understanding that the Lord is a sovereign God, she never really lost her faith. Naomi has no problem putting the blame on God's shoulders. It was as if God in some way had become her enemy. Certainly, the way in which she talked about how the Lord had done all this to her, like in verse 13, suggests that perhaps she had become bitter towards the Lord. From fullness to emptiness, it's no wonder she was bitter. Sometimes all the losses and all the things that we experience in life can have that effect on people. And yes, even Christians. They even have their moments of bitterness. Of course, we're human. Most of the time, we don't understand why we face some of the miseries we have to face in the world. And sometimes it causes us, like with the psalmist and lots of other people in the Bible, to shake our fist at heaven and say, God, what are you doing? Amidst the emptiness we face on earth, our frustrations can easily boil over. But I think that Naomi, like the Apostle Paul in retrospect, would probably encourage us to always keep our eyes and our hearts open to God's working in our life. For it's in the pits of despair. It's in the pits of her misery. It's in the pits of when everything is crystallized before her that Naomi experiences some grace. Ruth, the foreign, unentitled, 
daughter-in-law refuses to go home. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. What an incredible statement of faith from a foreign woman who hadn't grown up with God at all. When you hear that kind of a statement, how do you respond to that? Naomi responded positively. She accepts Ruth's statement, and they go on together. And then you notice what happens when they get to Bethlehem. Once they reach Bethlehem, the people are stirred, says the writer, verse 19. And the women ask, can this be Naomi? Really? She doesn't look like it. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. This is how the story of Ruth begins. From fullness to emptiness. Naomi had left the house of bread with a full family, but she had come back but one person with, one, with only one person, a daughter-in-law who was a foreigner and who was a widow at that. So here are two powerless, ordinary, grieving, empty, bottom-of-the-totem-pole people. And then the hope and a glimpse of what is to come. Verse 22. Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem, and they, did you read, did you hear that? They arrived as the barley harvest was beginning. As the barley harvest was beginning. Pentecost is a celebration of the barley harvest. Praise God. That that, that reference to the barley harvest was a harbinger of things to come for when you read the rest of the story then you'll remember that Boaz comes into Ruth's life and they're married and Obed was born and Obed was the father of Jesse and Jesse was the father of David and David was the forefather of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. From fullness to emptiness, to an incredible display of God's covenant faithfulness shown through the life of a very simple, ordinary, foreign woman. That's basically the gospel story. That's what makes Christmas so exciting. The fact that Ruth is included in the genealogy of Jesus reminds us that while it may seem like all is lost, And while it may seem like all is dark and empty and sad, yet the light shines in the darkness. There is a faithful God. There is a God who is true to his covenant promises. There's a God who is true to the promises that he makes to each and every one of us through the sacrament of baptism. 
There is a God who is true to his promises to make all things new, and that's done through the obedience and the faithfulness of his son, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth to be like us, Emmanuel, God with us. What a story. Emptiness. Fullness to emptiness to fullness in Christ. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Amen. Father in heaven, we praise you for this beautiful gospel. In the midst of a world where so much is lost, so much is destroyed, so much is dark, the story of Jesus is the light in that darkness. And we praise you for your faithfulness. And we thank you for your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.